anyone can have a relationship with psychedelics. And I think that's part of the mainstreaming effect and, you know, diversifying the image of people who are involved in the psychedelic space, who are writing for Double Blind, the type of stories that we're covering, I think is really sort of adding to this kaleidoscopic picture. There were a lot, a lot, a lot of people who had absolutely no idea what was going on in the realm of psychedelics and really just associated them with like Timothy Leary and the 60s. And now all of a sudden we're seeing, you know, all these jurisdictions decriminalize. There is always an alternative to these like institutions and, you know, hierarchical structures that now everybody is putting their faith and investment money into. When we're thinking about models and the best models for overturning psychedelic prohibition, the North Star is what is the model that's going to reduce the most amount of suffering. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Okay, I gotta admit, even though we all should have seen it coming, it's weird seeing psychedelics become mainstream. From soccer moms smoking toad venom, to every celebrity and their great aunt, admitting to going to Peru to drink ayahuasca, to ritzy spa-like ketamine clinics popping up at a strip mall near you, we are watching the United States embrace these so-called hippie drugs like it was a new fad diet. And in most places, these drugs are still highly illegal, which makes it even more remarkable that so many regular people are suddenly interested in these substances. There are pros and cons to all of this. It really shouldn't be surprising, but for some reason, I'm still amazed to be living through this period in our evolution as human primates. I don't know, was that too Terrence McKenna? Whatever. It's a weird, interesting time to be alive, and I'm really curious what comes next. Psychedelics are not exactly taking the same path that cannabis has taken to the mainstream, but there are some similarities. In the late 90s and early aughts, when medical cannabis was first starting to take hold in California, quasi-legal businesses popped up overnight with a lot of questionable quality control, and these shops were often raided by the DEA. Now cannabis is so blasé here in California, and more than 15 other states that have legalized adult-use weed, and it's almost hard to imagine a time when you couldn't have a bag of cannabis gummies plus a joint dipped in oil and rolled in keef delivered directly to your door like they used to do with Netflix DVDs. Is that what we're going to see with psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and all the rest? Already, people in some places like D.C., Colorado, and Oregon are selling branded psychedelic edibles. I've tried some myself, a psilocybin chocolate bar with Papa Smurf on the packaging. It tasted okay. In a lot of ways, with psychedelics, we're right where we were around 2010 with cannabis, a quasi-legal market that is ready to become legitimate, whether you like it or not. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guests today are Shelby Hartman and Madison Margolin, two of the great minds behind Double Blind Magazine, a publication dedicated to all things psychedelics and much more in the periphery of psychedelic culture. It's a magazine I've had the pleasure of contributing to about a dozen times. So full transparency here, I am interviewing my editors, uh, but it should still be an insightful conversation, I hope. We're going to dive into the psychedelic mainstreaming and much more, so stay tuned. First, a little bit about Narcotica. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and all the rest. Go to narcocast.com to learn more about us. We'd love to hear from you. And here is our one and only advertisement. Narcotica is an independent, listener-supported program, and you can help us keep this show on the air by joining our Patreon. It's parked at patreon.com narcotica. We're so grateful to the people who keep this program going. We literally could not do it without you, so thank you so much. And that's all the boring stuff. 
Much better than I was trying to sell you an NFT of a bong, right? I mean, well, we have that too. Just go to narcocast.com slash NFT, but for drugs. Okay, just kidding. Anyway, uh, on to the show. Shelby Hartman is co-founder and CEO of Double Blind Magazine, and Madison is co-founder and editorial director. Double Blind is also an educational platform with guides on so-called microdosing and growing your own fungal medicine. The whole psychedelics universe is coming out of the shadows. It's a fascinating thing to witness, and these two really have their finger on the pulse of this movement. Madison and Shelby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. I guess briefly, let's talk about how you two met and what made you want to start a magazine together in this publishing climate. I mean, I don't want to call the idea crazy. I don't like to throw that word around, but I saw a statistic that around 70 newsrooms opened last year, which is really encouraging. Um, But a lot of media outlets are still folding. Layoffs are a common occurrence in this industry, and the places that are holding on can be really struggling. And, And one more part to the question, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Uh, but did you get the idea to start a magazine from taking psychedelics? Madison, do you want to tell him our love story? Sure. Okay, so Shelby and I were both at Columbia Journalism School at the same time. We were in sort of different tracks of the grad program there. And we never met in J school, but I had heard about Shelby. People were saying, you should really meet her. You know, you guys have similar interests, et cetera, et cetera. Long story short, after J school, we were both freelancing for LA Weekly, Vice, you know, Rolling Stone, a lot of the same publications about cannabis and psychedelics. And so we decided to meet up with each other, got coffee at a really cute uh, coffee shop, paper, plastic, <laughs> paper and plastic in uh, Robertson, I highly recommend. And we kind of like became friends from there. And Shelby was editing at Herb and I was writing for Herb. And so we developed a working relationship. And then Shelby usually tells us part of the story, but she was living in New Orleans and was meditating. And the idea to just do a psychedelic magazine just popped into her head. And so like when she finished meditating, she called me and was like, hey, do you want to start a psychedelic magazine? And I was like, yeah, sure. And that was really the genesis of it. I, you know, at the time, this was now like, I think early December, 2018, maybe, maybe November even. We, re- we really had like no idea what we were, what Double Blind would become at this point, you know, now three years, three plus years later. And so it's really just blossomed from there. Right. I mean, I'll just say that I, I've worked in many different kinds of newsrooms and I've spent much of my career thinking about what it means to monetize storytelling without diluting the storytelling itself. And I've seen a lot of my mentors and friends who devoted their lives to particular newsrooms just basically get fired overnight. And so I've always really kind of been devastated by the trajectory of journalism, given how much I care about it. And so the decision to start a print magazine certainly was not like a calculated financial one. I, we just liked print and we liked magazines and we just wanted to do it. And so we did. <laughs> That's awesome. And I really respect that. You know, I went to journalism school and we would have guest speakers come and they would say, get out of this industry now. It's dying. Don't take this job. And this is like, you know, 2007 to 2011. So it seems like it's always chaotic. Um, and I didn't listen to any of those guest speakers, obviously. And I, it's, it's a struggle still, but uh, I, I couldn't do anything else. I really enjoy this field. Are psychedelics really going mainstream? And what does that mean exactly? <laughs> I mean, you hear that a lot, but I don't actually know what it means sometimes. I mean, to me, I think when we talk about mainstream, we talk about sort of 
the zeitgeist and what people are talking about in pop culture, what the news is covering, what kind of shows are seeing on Netflix. And so I think uh, that's kind of what people mean when they say psychedelics are going mainstream is that for a long time, you know, there was a psychedelic community, meaning there were people who were really passionate about psychedelics and doing psychedelics and thinking about how to legalize psychedelics. But then there were a lot, a lot, a lot of people who had absolutely no idea what was going on in the realm of psychedelics and really just associated them with like Timothy Leary and the 60s. And now all of a sudden we're seeing, you know, all these jurisdictions decriminalize and Michael Pollan, of course, they call it the Pollan effect, had his best New York Times bestselling book that everyone and their grandmother has read. And, uh, you know, we have these shows on Netflix, Have a Good Trip and Hamilton Morris's show on Vice, Pharmacopia. And, you know, we just, we're just seeing seeing people who are not in the psychedelic community talking about psychedelics. And also, I think quite optimistically, uh, having a, a more sophisticated understanding of what they were, meaning, you know, you have a lot of people now saying things like, oh yeah, I heard that, you know, mushrooms are great for depression, or I hear that MDMA is great for trauma, as opposed to, isn't that just like that cr those crazy drugs that those crazy hippies did uh, back in the 60s? <laughs> I guess I would add, and you know, people ask us this question a lot, as you know, as far as the mainstreaming of psychedelics. And just one note that I have to that is that yes, they are becoming more prominent, I'd say, in the mainstream consciousness. But I would hope that an effect of that would be not that psychedelics are being sterilized to accommodate mainstream consciousness, but rather that, you know, to to quote myself from a previous podcast interview, um, that. The, the mainstream itself could become more psychedelic. And what I mean by that is really like integrating the ethos of psychedelics into the way that we're living our lives. And, you know, when I, you know, when people say that psychedelics are becoming more mainstream, I ask myself, like, what, what do we even mean when we talk about psychedelic? Like, what is kind of a psychedelic life or psychedelic lifestyle? And, you know, if psychedelics when you're, when you're tripping or when, you know, when you're under the influence kind of put you in touch with your, I would say like core essence in a lot of ways, whether that's uncomfortable or pleasant or any other range of sensations, ultimately like they're putting us in touch with ourselves. And I think to live a psychedelic life is one that is where people feel empowered and enabled to continue to like connect with that essence. And so again, hopefully that can like translate into the ways that we make policy decisions and business decisions and lifestyle choices and all of these ways that we live our sober lives that are informed by sort of psychedelic values and the psychedelic experience itself. One thing I've encountered really uh, rubbed up against a couple times is interesting to me is that the idea of psychedelics is a lot more comfortable with conservative people than even cannabis sometimes. They're more on board with let's legalize psychedelics in a medicalized setting for veterans or people that are struggling with suicide or something like that. But they still think that cannabis is just a drug to get high and that shouldn't be legal. Have you ever run up against that idea? I definitely have. I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that cannabis has been widely discussed in the mainstream for longer so there's been more time for like narratives and stigma to perpetuate like psychedelics in a way you know 
kind of fell off a lot of people's radar for decades because of, you know, the ban on psychedelic research. Meanwhile, you know, since the 90s, we've had cannabis reform happening um, at the state level, which, you know, has allowed for the proliferation of conversations around cannabis and of course all of the sort of like brands and cultural stuff that came up around cannabis. I mean, we know that there was a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of stoner culture quote unquote, that became popularized in the 90s and the 2000s with, you know, in hip hop and also like with Harold and Kumar, what's it, the, that movie of Harold and the, the, the two guys who smoke weed and drive to White Castle. I've never seen it, but yeah, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. I think they also went to Guantanamo Bay. And there's 420 as well, which yeah. is, you know, the legend and lore of 420 and, and, and smoking weed on college campuses in Colorado for 420 and what happens in Golden Gate Park around 420. I mean, there's just, while the psychedelic culture kind of died off in the 60s and 70s, or at least went underground and wasn't as visible, people kept smoking weed and they kept smoking it very publicly and singing about it and making ridiculous movies about it. So. <laughs> what do we expect <laughs> and yeah i think with psychedelics there's also a sort of like a nostalgia about it like a lot of older people are like well that was the thing that was in the 60s and people didn't understand it and like now i'm okay with it whereas other drugs especially so-called hard drugs you know i don't like that dichotomy at all that some drugs are soft and some drugs are hard but like the stigma against methamphetamine and coke and heroin and fentanyl and all this stuff like it's you, Madison, you did a really great article on this about psychedelic exceptionalism and how we put psychedelics into this category that it's okay because they're therapeutic, but then we ignore the therapeutic value of these other drugs or uh, really gloss over some of the more complex issues with addiction that, that people use these drugs in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think just to sort of address this past question that you asked and the one before that is like, the thing is, it's much more obvious to the to the public that like how many people have the capacity to have a relationship with cannabis, you know, and cannabis culture is prolific in all different kinds of communities. And we see that in the media, we see that in drug war statistics, we see that almost everywhere. Whereas, you know, due to this kind of psychedelic exceptionalism, I'll say is, you know, first of all, people are not getting busted for psychedelics as much as they're getting busted for cannabis. And so there's this idea that psychedelics are sort of this like white hippie thing or, you know, otherwise people consider them in regard to like conversations around like indigenous use. And so those are two sort of outposts, I'd say, of like psychedelic culture and like the demographic of people who are using them and are have known to have used them. But, you know, a lot of what we also do with double blind is show that like, you know, really anyone can have a relationship with psychedelics. And I think that's part of the mainstreaming effect and, you know, diversifying the image of people who are involved in the psychedelic space, who are writing for double blind, the type of stories that we're covering, I think is really sort of adding to this kaleidoscopic picture of like, um, of who the psychedelic person is. And so, you know, kind of shall be addressed at the, at the get-go of this part of the conversation is a lot of people will say like, oh, mushrooms aren't they great for depression? And like, ever, depression can affect anybody and everybody. And so, you know, like showing like that kind of diversity of use also then lends itself to diversity of consumer demographic. 
<laughs> that consumer demographic sounds so official, but the, you know, the demographic of people who can use and benefit from, or maybe shouldn't even be taking psychedelics, but it's really a human experience more so than it is one that should be relegated to any particular community. Yeah. And I feel like I hear this a lot. There can be almost too much enthusiasm. Like all the enthusiasm about psychedelics is really encouraging. Like I never really thought I'd live to see something like this. But there's this fear, especially among researchers, that there might be this blowback that like people could get too excited and then that could bring us into another dark age where these things are very hard to study or very hard for people to get access to. So that people like J.R. Ron, the former CEO of MindMed, you know, was pretty vocally against the decriminalized nature movement. And I'm... I, a little agnostic about that opinion, like whether there's too much enthusiasm and whether that's going to have negative consequences in the future. Because I feel like, I don't know, the toothpaste is out of the tube. Uh, Nora Valco, head of NIDA, recently said the train has left the station. We could use other metaphors. But basically the same thing that, you know, I don't think we can go back on this issue. But maybe I'm wrong and I do want to be cautious about that. I always try in my reporting not to be like, these drugs will save your life or the magical miracle panacea cure or whatever, you know. And I think that Double Blind does a really good job of that, tempering expectations a little bit and giving people extremely accurate information, which is what they need. People want information. No one's trying to put a drug in somebody's mouth or something. We're just like, if you're, you're going to do that already, you need to know what, what you're doing. Yeah, I would say that like part of like the journalistic ethos isn't like, you know, while an effect of more journalism about psychedelics might lend to their popularity like the point of journalism is not to make psychedelics more popular it's just to like report and reflect what's going on you know like in reality in the zeitgeist but i do also think in the same goes for cannabis reporting is like the more you're honest about and transparent about the ill effects or the drawbacks or whatever the stronger the arguments actually are for when people are talking about the benefits because when you talk about the benefits without the rigor of addressing the the negative effects it, it's sort of like people don't want to believe you they're like oh you're just trying to sell me something or you don't want to admit the the bad things that are happening and then you end up with people being blindsided when bad things do happen and then like a whole other conundrum about being able to like admit that and talk about it and is it safe space to, you know to use the term to to talk about like when quote unquote bad trips happen or, you know, why schizophrenic people who have schizophrenic tendencies maybe should, you know, not use psychedelics so liberally or things like that. Like there's a lot of really heavy stuff going on that I also, God forbid, like wouldn't want to see that, first of all, like impact anyone's lives in a negative way, but ultimately it will also impact the success of the psychedelic policy reform movement. You know, if there's not enough information and education about what could go wrong. And then people, you know, end up in situations that are going to make headlines and, you know, convince more conservative lawmakers that all of these decrim campaigns should be stopped and this and that, you know, I won't say that it's impossible to have the same sort of backlash that we had in, you know, the early seventies with Nixon, like, you know, maybe the ship has set sail and it's impossible to reel it back in, but, there's, there's always a reactionary element. And, you know, even if there's not a new drug war, you know, the, the worst case scenario would just be that people are, are not using them in healthy ways. I think it's important to, to be rigorous and to be honest 
Otherwise we dilute our own credibility. And it's also just ethically our responsibility as journalists to do that. One way I can kind of see things, I guess there's a lot of different people in the psychedelic community. Everybody has different backgrounds and different, you know, motives. I don't want to say that in a negative way, but like different end goals. And so I think one thing that a lot of people would not like to see is for psychedelics to become accessible legally, but only in a therapeutic model, you know, only having access to this through a doctor or something like that is still just another form of prohibition. And I can see that kind of happening a little bit with the whole patent wars thing that's happening right now. A lot of psychedelic companies are really trying to stake out intellectual property and it's just kind of a huge mess and I don't know where we're going to be going with it, but I, I think it's like 14 cities have decriminalized psychedelics. Oregon, of course, has started their own psilocybin thing. So I guess, what are your thoughts on basically locking this behind a pharmaceutical model? What would be the consequences well, of that? I've often said that um, besides just doing nuanced ethical reporting on what's happening within the realm of psychedelics, that my personal goal, I would ask Madison to chime in on whether she agrees or disagrees with this or how she feels, but my personal goal is to try and help reduce suffering for the most amount of people. That's really what it's about for me. And I, you know, I think that it's amazing to use psychedelics as a tool for exploring our own consciousness and in ceremonial context to connect with other entities and divinity and, and whatever. But for me, my number one goal is just the reduction of suffering. And so when we're thinking about models and the best models for overturning psychedelic prohibition, the North Star is what is the model that's going to reduce the most amount of suffering. So in that spirit, I'm not anti-drug development and I am not anti-FDA approval because I know that there are a lot of people who will never do psychedelics if it doesn't have the FDA stamp of approval and who don't want to just trip on their own or go to the Amazon and sit in an ayahuasca ceremony, like my grandma, for example, who has depression, you know? And, uh, and additionally, you know, the hope is, and I know that, you know, there's a lot of smart people thinking about this, that the FDA's approval is going to enable insurance companies to cover these treatments too, which right now are prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. So I, I'm not anti-drug development, but I am anti-creating a hierarchy of set and settings in which we say FDA-approved drug development is the only model, and it's not legitimate to do psychedelics ceremonially, and it's not legitimate to do psychedelics at a festival, and it's not legitimate to do psychedelics, you know, it, whatever, in a, in, a, in a decriminalized context where you decide to, you know, have your, your mom trips it for you, like you know, people find healing in, in a variety of, of, of settings. And, you know, as long as you're being respectful of the lineage of these medicines and you're not causing harm to other people, uh, I think like that's, that's fine. So I also just want to challenge this notion that there's like somehow a war happening between the folks who are investing in drug development and the activists who are pushing decriminalization through at the local level, because, you know, yeah, there are, you know, divisions between all the different ideological divisions between people who are approaching 
the overturning of prohibition in different ways, even within the decriminalization movement, there's a ton of differing opinions around, you know, well, should we decriminalize all drugs or should we just decriminalize natural psychedelics or should we just decriminalize psilocybin or, you know, and then, you know, even within California, there's divisions between SB 519, which is trying to decriminalize psychedelics through the state legislature and the, and the decriminalized psilocybin initiative, which is trying to get the, the initiative in front of voters in November. So there's a lot of differing opinions, but that doesn't mean that many of these models can't be progressing simultaneously and guess what they are and guess what they're going to continue to, whether people like it or not. So I think everyone needs to come to the table and find a way to talk about that. 100%. Yeah, that's great. That kind of reminds me of Maine, which this week legislators declined to pass a psilocybin law. The head of the CDC of Maine said basically, well, it's not FDA approved, so we need to wait for that. And I'm just like, okay, well, meanwhile, people who actually need access to this drug aren't going to get it. And the people that really are really going to go out of their way, it's not going to be that difficult for them to get it. You're just perpetuating more suffering, basically, by not being a little bit bold on this. But uh, I mean, Maine's not the most progressive state, so not really surprised either. Great lobster. I would add I <laughs> that, like, yeah, like that Shelby did mention, like, that we're, you know, this is not about a hierarchy of set and setting, whether it's an FDA approved therapeutic model or a decriminalized situation where people are tripping in nature, or whatever it is. But, like, I also just really want to challenge the assumption that, like, FDA approved equals medical and therapeutic and anything outside of that doesn't equal medical or therapeutic because like there's so much overlap between what is therapeutic and what is spiritual and even doing something quote unquote recreationally can have massively therapeutic effects and like by the same token even if you're doing psilocybin in like an FDA approved you know therapy context and it's really fun like that's okay too so like you know I just really want to like encourage people to like expand what they think about when they think about what is therapy and where does therapy take place it could be on a mountaintop as easily as it could be in a clinic yeah that's a really good point point. and shelby i kind of want to go back to something you were saying about how there's not really a war between these two different groups the decriminalized nature and sort of the pharmaceutical industry because i think that some people kind of benefit from pushing this well selling a war is a lot of journalists do that. Um, and I think, you know, drumming up controversy instead of being like, hey, where can we find middle ground on this is counterproductive. There's uh, some interesting pushback on this idea that psychedelics can help us build this utopian society. And I guess I kind of fall into the camp where I think that if there was broader access to psychedelics, that there would be massive shifts in uh, social consciousness in a positive way. But I also, you know, do want to be a little skeptical of that and also be like, yeah, we're not going to necessarily like have a perfect society just because everybody eats a bunch of mushrooms. But I think, I don't know, there's like a lot of research that suggests that, you know, if you take these things, you feel a lot more connected to your community. You feel a lot more connected to nature. On the other hand, I know plenty of people that don't feel any different like that after taking these drugs. So it's, it's a real, you know, your mileage may vary a little bit, but can we talk about that? Like, this idea of utopianism, if that's a word, I think it is, but how that fits into the whole psychedelic thing. Um, I don't think psychedelics inherently make you more enlightened or a better person or anything like that. You know, psychedelic people are assholes too, right? And so 
you know, I think really it's all in the integration. If everyone is, is taking psychedelics, like sure, naturally there's something integrator people might have, you know, ideas that might come to them that they want to like change their lives with. But if you're not actively changing the way you live your life, then the psychedelic experience is just kind of masturbatory. And so for me, like the utopian society ideal is not found in the psychedelic experience, but in the integration of that experience and the application of it into the way that we live our lives. And again, this is, you know, something that I really want to encourage people is to say to themselves, like, what is psychedelic? Like, what does that actually mean? And I said this earlier in this interview is like, unless like we are trying to live in a way that feels psychedelic. And for me, that's a life where like, I get enough sleep and I eat vegetables and I do yoga every day and I do my breathing exercises and I get work done that, you know, has like an, an impact on the world around me and my soul feels nourished. That is a psychedelic lifestyle. And sure, like sometimes I dip in to the psychedelic experience periodically to like remind myself of that. Yeah. I think the word psychedelic literally just means like mind manifesting or something like that. I mean, you can correct me on the definition there, but yeah. And I, it's also, if it, I think psychedelics can just be a tool in self-actualization. And I think once we're like healthily self-actualized, then like society has an opportunity to become a little bit more utopic, but until people are really like aware of themselves and their essence, and then like taking action to manifest that in their sober, regular lives, then like, what's the point? Uh, okay, cool. I wanted to talk about uh, the new issue a little bit. It's got a really cool cover. I like it a lot. Shelby, you had this really interesting article in here called The the Great Awakening. Uh, it's all about this individual. What's his name? Shane Norte. Shane Norte, reconnecting with his native heritage uh, through psychedelics um, a little bit. It's it's great. I like how it talks about you know standing up to this Oak Flat mine. I'm from Arizona, so like that kind of feels a little personal. Like that there's this copper mine that Senator John McCain was kind of behind getting developed from these uh, outside corporations, and it's just you know destroying sacred land. Um, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about the story. Yeah. So I met Shane, Shane Norte actually reached out to Double Blind about a year ago. He emailed us and just to introduce himself and to share his story. And, uh, and we thought it was great. And we thought he was really interesting. And we uh, interviewed him and then he, he invited us to come to the reservation and um, which is near Palomar Mountain, the La Jolla Indian Reservation and spend some time with him. And I just, you know, I thought that he had a really compelling story. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that I'm always interested in as a, as a journalist is complicating sort of tropes about particular types of people. And I think the thing that's one of the things that's interesting about Shane is, you know, he's a, he's a native man in his twenties and, you know, he describes his life before he, did mushrooms for the first time in college. And he says he was like any other like American kid, you know, like he was playing video games and going on social media and just like was kind of confused about what, what he wanted to do with his life. And um, the mushrooms sort of catalyzed him to reconnect with his native identity and to go on this journey of finding other young natives, going to conferences with native youth and then beginning to defend sacred lands 
And, uh, you know, I just, I thought that that, that that was interesting, this idea that like, you know, he really was just like any other young American kid and that it was the mushrooms that sort of catalyzed his, his desire to reconnect with his heritage and his ancestors. I think that that's something that happens to a lot of people when they do psychedelics, you know, that it, it, it prompts these existential questions about like, who am I and who are my ancestors and how did I end up here? And how does my trajectory fit into, you know, the greater trajectory of like humanity or the planet? I also, you know, was inspired by his story because, you know, he's serving mushrooms in this, you know, this Wamkish, this traditional Pio Kachim space on the reservation where his grandmother grew up. And it's basically come one, come all. And he doesn't charge for the for the ceremonies. And for and to me, it's an interesting sort of juxtaposition with um, you know some of what we were talking about before in regards to drug development and you know the FDA approval process and you know all of the bureaucracy. I mean, for Shane, it's literally the opposite of that. Like he's not even charging for the ceremonies. It's like you want to do mushrooms, come do mushrooms. And you know he believes deeply that like you know people have been doing mushrooms for thousands of years, and it doesn't need to be this big complicated bureaucratic process. Like just take the fricking mushrooms, <laughs> which plays into, you know, Madison and my devotion as she was talking about to, you know, the kind of kaleidoscopic um, lens on uh, the psychedelic community and who is doing psychedelics and how people are doing psychedelics and what it means to do psychedelics in a quote unquote legitimate context. Yeah, that brings me to this really interesting topic of, uh, I'm going to fuck up the pronunciation, reciprocity. You know, there's all these psychedelic companies that are coming in and being like, oh, wow, there's this psychedelic compound that has existed forever in these indigenous medicines. And it also would be great to make it into a pharmaceutical. And some companies, I think only like one that I know of, um, I believe it's a Journey Collab. You can correct me on this. You know, they're like the only company that's giving back to indigenous people because they're trying to develop a mescaline based medication and they want to give back to people that use mescaline uh, religiously. Why is this issue of uh, importance? How does that whole fit into the whole uh, psychedelic movement that's accelerating? I mean, I think generally speaking, it gets to the heart of a lot of the conversations that are happening more broadly in the psychedelic community around equity and access and, and ethics in general. You know, a lot of people within the psychedelic movement um, saw what happened to cannabis in which the original pioneers of the cannabis movement who were growing cannabis and putting their lives on the line, you know, were shut out of the industry. And we are in a situation now where there's still people who are incarcerated for the possession and or selling of cannabis. Meanwhile, you know, it's blossomed into this quadrillion dollar industry that others, newcomers to the field are profiting from. And so, you know, it is important absolutely to be talking about indigenous reciprocity because, you know, basically what's happening is that a large re reason why a lot of these plant medicines are still in use and it's still understood, you know, how they've been used for thousands of years is because indigenous people have continued to use them for thousands of years, that people have been doing the Shipibo and um, other Amazonian groups have been doing ayahuasca for thousands of years, that it's in their origin stories, that Native Americans and um, as well as the um, 
Huichol people in Mexico have been doing peyote for more than 10,000 years. We did a story that actually the ashes of the ceremonial, the ceremonial ashes of the Huichol peyote ceremonies have been carbon dated back to more than 10,000 years. And, you know, also we know that the Mazatec have been using mushrooms for thousands of years. So why is it that people are still using these compounds ceremonially? Why is it that people still understand, you know, that they're sacred? In large part, it's because the indigenous communities have been the stewards and the protectors of these medicines and their sacred potential for thousands of years. And so we owe them a great gratitude. And, um, you know, but more broadly speaking, it's like, it's also just about ensuring that, you know, the spirit of these medicines, which so often do teach us about the values of compassion and unity are preserved as we quote unquote, like corporatize or mainstream or commodify these medicines um, simply because we want more people to have access to them as medicine. It's a really great point. Yeah, I mean, Shelby really said most of it. So, you know, I'll just say that like, you know, indigenous peoples to the Amazon or Mexico or parts of the United States have stewarded both like the wisdom around how to use these plants as well as, you know, the plants themselves. And I think, you know, especially as this whole FDA approval, mainstreaming, medicalized Western process is imposed upon psychedelics, like the ceremonial indigenous use that has existed for thousands of years, it remains here to remind us that like there is always an alternative to these like institutions and, you know, hierarchical structures that now everybody is putting their faith and investment money into when really again, like the safety and efficacy and spiritual and medicinal and therapeutic potential of these medicines has already been proven, you know, just in the longevity of their use and how integral they are to the religions and practices of, you know, of, of people in various, you know, parts of the world. So, and again, paying homage to that is just the right thing to do. Yeah. Madison, I wanted to talk about an article that you have in uh, issue six as well, um, defining trauma. I thought this was really well done. Recently, there was the cover issue of Harper's was called Against Trauma by Will Self. And I read the whole thing and didn't understand it. <laughs> it was 16 pages. And I was like, what the hell is this writer trying to say? Uh, it was kind of like, do we use the word trauma too much? Do we apply it to too many things? And I liked your article because it's like two or three pages and it just really gets to the point. It's like, can you talk about it a little bit? Like what, what you were going for here? And like, I know that trauma is a thing that people, are, first of all, it's great that people are more comfortable talking about it and it's less stigmatized. And like everybody seems to have some form of trauma maybe, but I also want to be really cautious of being like, everything is trauma. Like, and, and how does that fit in with psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, so like, how are we defining trauma first and foremost? My friend Natalie Ginsberg, uh, who works for MAPS, wants to put it super succinctly, which is that trauma is the feeling of being unsafe. And I think that has a lot of different contexts. And so it could be like physical unsafety, like, you know, just this feeling in your body that someone could come after you, God forbid, or that danger is always right around the corner. Or it could just be emotional safety, 
like not feeling like you can express yourself in certain types of relationships or things like that. And so the, the crux of the article is really a like defining what trauma and like what we mean when we talk about it, but then asking why this is such a conversation right now in the zeitgeist and is it merited? Like, is there too much emphasis on trauma or are we, you know, like kind of fetishizing it and just abusing the term and then belittling what trauma means for people who have real diagnosable trauma versus everyone else now who everyone has had trauma. And so that's really what the article aims to explore. And then there's, of course, like different types of trauma, like there's the trauma that, you know, you experience from like one singular event that, um, you know, there's like a before and after effect um, versus trauma that is systemic or ancestral or, you know, of course, the conversation around the way trauma quote lives in the body. And again, that can come from like, you know, a singular event where it's like you're in fight, flight or freeze and how the body, like what you do physically at that moment, which informs the way your trauma processes or doesn't process versus like what genetically you're inheriting from your ancestors. And so Dr. Rachel Yehuda at Mount Sinai in New York has done a lot of research on epigenetics and, you know, basically as the, which is the conversation around the way gene function changes in, you know, for instance, like the, you know, grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. That's not to say the genes themselves are different, but it's really just the function of the genes. And so it's really a kind of nascent um, scientific exploration. But, you know, the idea of the story is really to just ask ourselves, like, you know, I, I think a more trauma informed consciousness is a good thing. And I think, you know, I, I wrote, you know, five years ago at this point, a story about how addressing trauma is like part and parcel to, if not central to like solving the Israel-Palestine conflict, because, you know, trauma informs the decisions that we make both in terms of voting and also just the way that we treat other people around us or our neighbors or our enemies or any of that. So, so yeah, I, I don't know if I was as articulate as I was in the story, but that's the idea of the article. Yeah, well, people need to check it out if they want to read it. I, I recommend it. Yeah, psychedelics like seem to be really useful tools for trauma, but I, I like to caution people that there's not a panacea either. You know, it's not going to solve all of our problems. I think a lot of it really has to do with the way we build our societies to, you know, in, inflict trauma on each other. And it when you can kind of zoom out a little bit, it just all seems really pathetic like why are we doing this to each other but psychedelics can help help people like reframe it i think but i don't think it's going to solve the underlying issues of that either because you, you don't want to go to somebody that's just so traumatized and just be like just take this drug it'll it'll solve your problems it, it's like i emphasize that a lot that when you take psychedelics like a big part of it is often the integration or having a therapist or somebody along the ride with you and I would say also like there's this concept um, in Hebrew, it's called a tikkun. And it's like when you go to the, it's like, say I was late to this meeting. And so on the next meeting, I'm going to be sure to not be late. I'm going to make a tikkun on on my tardiness. And I think trauma is like kind of the same. And we, when we talk about healing trauma and doing the work, quote unquote, which I address that doing the work phrase in the story, but like, you know, being able to like be in the situation that at one point would have activated or triggered, and then to like, feel that your nervous system is actually maintains a level of calm, and you can stay in the parasympathetic state, 
like that would be making a tikkun on like the traumatic nervous system state and so you know a lot of it is like inspired by the ways that we can heal our trauma or at least start to make a dent in the way our nervous systems are reacting to events that should or shouldn't you know stress out our bodies so shifting gears a little bit i kind of want to ask you some questions about so-called microdosing which i don't really like the name microdosing anymore because i talked to a i think a psychopharmacologist and he's like this doesn't make any sense like you're giving a tenth of a tab of lsd that's not a microdose that's just a low dose and i guess that's a little bit semantics but basically you know microdosing is super popular and trendy especially and it seems like in silicon valley but it seems like every time some major research comes out it's like yeah it's mostly just the placebo effect and that sort of makes sense to me but I think you both would probably have a lot more to know, say about this than me. So do you have any thoughts on microdosing? I mean, my thoughts on microdosing are that thousands of people have reported that it helps them. So, you know, there hasn't been extensive double-blind randomized clinical research investigating microdosing. There's some studies that show that it might work and there's some studies which show that it might be the placebo effect and then we have tons and tons and tons of anecdotal quote unquote anecdotal evidence right so it sort of depends on you know who you take to be the authorities of you know efficacy in our society i mean we're we've been we were in the we've been in the position and we're still in the position with cannabis for a long long time where I mean, there's basically no double-blind randomized clinical trials investigating whole plant cannabis either. And yet it's like legal in almost every state and veterans are using it to help them sleep. And, you know, women who are pregnant sometimes use it for nausea while pregnant and chemotherapy patients are using it for nausea. So, you know, it's like, who, who do we, who do we believe? Do we believe the, the anecdotal research or do we say, you know, we just don't know because we don't have, you know, rigorous clinical trials yet. Or, you know, I, I can tell you that I, I microdose every other day. I take 0.1 grams of psilocybin mushrooms. And I think that it's really helped me. Maybe it's the placebo effect, but guess what? The placebo effect works. That's why it's so powerful. So that's all I could, you know, th th those are my thoughts. I think that we'll, and we will find out soon enough in some of these more rigorous clinical trials, what the data actually shows. Okay, great. So what's going on at Double Blind and what do you have coming up? Yeah. So um, at the end of 2021, we released our sixth issue, which you just referenced. Um, everyone should look, look that up and <laughs> get one. We're planning our seventh issue. We also have sort of like theatric dining uh, dinner party um, later in the fall. I think that there's kind of two elements to what we do or what we have been doing, which is our journalism. So just continuing to publish articles on the website and release the print magazine and hopefully going to be doing more multimedia stuff in the near future. We, you know, we're definitely looking to do more in the realm of film and TV and podcasting. Nothing immediately happening with that, but lots of ideas and lots of conversations, which is exciting. And then in terms of the education, it's like we have our courses, which we're um, constantly um, releasing new courses. We just released a course on trip sitting with Skyweaver and Tony Moss, which I think is 
really amazing. I love them. They're amazing. And we have webinars every single month. We have two webinars a month. So we have one coming up on psychedelics for men's healing. We have one on psychedelics for trauma the month after that. So yeah, tons of stuff. And then the events Madison mentioned as well. Just just going back to the magazine a little bit. I mean, I just really love the art in it. And like, there's the trip zone, you know, it's like something to look at if you're on psychedelics or even weed, I guess. It's just very beautiful. I think there's a lot of value in having something physical these days. Um, so I appreciate that. And I think people should pick it up. I really love this comic about the dog that licks the, the Sonoran Desert Toad and goes on a little dog trip. What I, what I like about print is that it's like a real-life experience. And to that end, you know, we haven't really announced any of these yet, but we want Double Blind to also offer more real-life experiences. So, I mean, I think we're going to see like the sort of similar to what we're seeing now, proliferation of the decriminalization movement. Um, but that could expand not just from localities, but to <clears throat> like larger jurisdictions, like, you know, whole states, for instance, um, you know, probably within the next, I don't want to put a particular number on it, but I'll say like in the first half of this decade, probably, you know, we are going to see, I believe, I, I suspect we might see FDA approval for MDMA and psilocybin, though I, I'm not really sure what years that will take place. But you know, the thing is, what's what's cool is this trajectory is happening so fast, that it's almost impossible to see where it will go, but also gives us a lot of information to track patterns. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I would agree that we're just going to continue down the same trajectory that we have been in terms of decrim and these compounds moving ahead um, through the FDA approval process. I think that hopefully we'll also see some movement in regards to accessing of psychedelics for religious reasons. I don't know for sure if that will happen. The Drug Enforcement Administration has been sitting on a bunch of applications for a long time for exemption from the Controlled Substances Act to use psychedelics religiously, but I know there are people who are trying to get that to change and are hopeful that Biden will pay attention. Um, and I also... Um, think we might see some more states follow in Oregon's footsteps and try to legalize psilocybin therapy at the state level. Um, we'll definitely see the, the continued growth and proliferation of ketamine clinics all across the United States, more psychedelic companies going public. And yeah, I would think I think those are kind of the, the, the major pillars of, of reform that we'll probably see. Oh, we might also see some uh, some movement around right to try. There's currently a lawsuit against the federal government's two cancer patients uh, suing the federal government for access to psilocybin through the right to try bill, which is a bill that allows people to access uh, medicines that are currently being investigated by the FDA, but not yet approved. So we might see some some movement on that, too, this year. Yeah, it's a really exciting time to be alive and to be covering this stuff. So I appreciate Double Blind's coverage on all this. Where can people find you? I feel like we need a jingle. Doubleblindmag.com. <laughs> At doubleblindmag on like all the all the platforms like TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. I'm just at Madison Margolin on Instagram. Um, my Twitter is actually the reverse of that. So it's at Margolin Madison. Um, and then Facebook, you can just like look me up. 
you know, I sometimes post there. Um, and just to Shelby's point about like a lot of religious groups um, getting more actively involved in the psychedelic space or just sort of coming out of the closet about psychedelics being part of their practices. And I've been like pretty heavily involved in like the Jewish psychedelic space. And so if you follow me on my personals, sometimes you'll get more information on that as well. Yeah, people can follow me personally if they want, but they're just going to get lots of pictures of my dog. So um, <laughs> I'm at Shelby Ann Hart, A-N-N-E-H-A-R-T on Instagram. And I think that's also my handle on Twitter, although I never tweet because I'm a terrible journalist and I don't do what I'm supposed to do, which is tweet all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Anything on your mind or anything we might have missed in this conversation? Yeah, it was good. Thanks, Troy. Yeah, I appreciate you both coming on. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, okay, have a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Troy Farah, and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Garrett Farah. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. You can get some merch like stickers or request a shout out on the show. We also have some mugs available soon. And I think some t-shirts coming down the line. A little goes a long way, so thanks for helping us out. We are an ad-free program and we'd like to keep it that way. But if Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can still help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, exploring the darkest corners of your own imagination. And maybe abolishing the drug war if we get around to it. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, all the jazz. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. And additional music is by Halizna CCO. <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Okay. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Those are the best ways to contact us. Should you want to submit a suggestion, a complaint, or just say something nice. That's everything, guys. Have a good week. <laughs>